HPPodcast.com. It was a great gray-black hood of horror moving over the floor of the sea. It slid through the soft ooze like a monstrous mantle of slime obscenely animated with questing life. It was by turns viscid and fluid. At times it flattened out and flowed through the carpet of mud like an inky pool. Occasionally it paused, seeming to shrink in upon itself, and reared up out of the ooze until it resembled an irregular cone or a gigantic hood. Although it possessed no eyes, it had a marvelously developed sense of touch, and it possessed a sensitivity to minute vibrations which was almost akin to telepathy. It was plastic, essentially shapeless. It could shoot out long tentacles until it bore a resemblance to a nightmare squid or a huge starfish. It could retract itself into a round, flattened disc, or squeeze into an irregular hunched shape so that it looked like a black boulder sunk on the bottom of the sea. It had prowled the black water endlessly. It had been formed when the earth and the seas were young. It was almost as old as the ocean itself. It moved through a night which had no beginning and no dissolution. The black sea basin where it lurked had been dark since the world began, an environment only a little less inimical than the stupendous gulfs of interplanetary space. That is the opening of Joseph Payne Brennan's short story, Slime, a story that Lovecraft never read because it was written 13 years after he died. Right. But that is not going to stop us here at the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are here at hppodcraft.com. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We are hip deep in the Black Lagoon, as in Creature from the... (laughs) And we're talking about sea water monster stories. That's kind of the the theme of the month. And this week, we got a good one, dude. We do. This was recommended to us by listener William Reader, or Ryder. It's R-I-E-D-E-R. I'm not confident about that. (laughs) And uh, we want to say thank you because, man, this thing rocks. It does. And the show's going to be great for a number of reasons. One of them is our reader. That was Andrew Lehman. He's back and he's giving us the good stuff. The great stuff. This is a wonderful story to hear him read. And as always, check out CthulhuLives.org for all the good H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society sundries. I know that they are shipping their new Dark Adventure Radio Theater production this month. It's called The White Tree, A Tale of Inspector Legrasse. Yeah. And they are currently in production on one of my personal favorites, The Thing on the Doorstep. Yes. And of course, if you're in the Yorkshire area, you can always catch Lackey's one-man musical adaptation of that story called simply Doorstep. That's without an exclamation point, which I think helps to set tone. Where can people see that show that you're doing right now? I was ill-prepared for that, but uh, (laughs) if you come to my house... Yes. I will give you a cup of tea and and then do my best. It's on your doorstep is where you actually do the show. I right? do the show yeah. on my doorstep. It's yeah. part of the theme. And I charge uh, 50 quid. Show up with your money. It's worth it. I don't know if you'll get your money's worth, but uh, you will definitely get a show. People are calling it the Hamilton of Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> and by people, you mean you. Yeah, I just called it that. But in the press, that's what it's being trumpeted as. <laughs> Speaking of the press, uh, our, our website, the news hasn't been good lately. <laughs> Man, it's been horrible. I, I want to tell folks what's just going on so that people know what's happening. We've been having a lot of problems with our system and we're hoping to upgrade and set up something new. We're trying to hire somebody right now and it's hard to find somebody that can do what we need and, and if they're available and blah, blah, blah. So we're working on that daily, trying to get everything sorted out. We're not sure how long that's going to take, 
but we promise you the content will be made and we will get it to you yes. by hook or by crook. Yes. In the meantime, we'll just keep fielding issues as they come up like sexy triage nurses. <laughs> you will still get the show. Now, Joseph Payne Brennan did not write stories that Lovecraft read, but he actually is important to Lovecraft scholarship. So let's hear a little bit about this author, Joseph Payne Brennan. Sure. He was born in 1918 up in Connecticut. Most of his life was spent doing his day job. He worked as an acquisitions assistant at the Sterling Memorial Library at Yale University. Yeah, he did that for over 40 years. It's surprising. You would have thought he would have moved up from assistant in 40 years, but okay, have another coffee break, Brennan. <laughs> he started getting his poems published in 1940 and short stories soon thereafter. Mm-hmm. Today's story was printed in the March 1953 issue of Weird Tales. Yes. He published a collection of his stuff soon after. He also published his own magazine for quite a few years called Macabre. Stephen King loved this guy's stuff. He called him a master of the unashamed horror tale. And there's a Stephen King story that shares a lot with this story, right? Yeah, the Is it called The Raft? The Raft, yeah. And that was adapted, I think, in Creepshow 2 as well. Yes. Brennan has a lot of fans. Thomas Ligotti wrote him some fan letters in his 20s, which Brennan responded to, actually. Now, I know this is a long story, but I did want to highlight one thing about Brennan and why he's awesome for us to cover on this show. He was a huge Mm -hmm. Lovecraft fan. He was really one of Lovecraft's first bibliographers. Yes. Brennan wrote poetry his whole life, but with fiction, he started with Westerns, and then he got into supernatural fiction and weird tales. Now, you mentioned Macabre. This was the imprint at first that he started in 1955. It was called Macabre House, and it actually started with the publication of the pamphlet H.P. Lovecraft and Evaluation, Mm -hmm. which I guess is now pretty tough to find. But the first thing was about Lovecraft that he published under that imprint. Yeah. So he was one of the first popularizers of his work. And the magazine that they started, Macabre, it was founded in 57. It ran for 23 issues over 20 years. And it was, it said it served as a rallying place for all those devoted to horror and the supernatural. And, you know, it was purposely an imitator of weird tales, trying to keep that tradition going. Some issues contain the articles on H.P. Lovecraft, Time and Lovecraft, and Lovecraft on the Subway. And the ninth issue also featured an article on Lovecraft by Brennan. So it was very relevant to what we're covering here. A lot of the stories published in that magazine are actually considered essential to the growth and continuation of the mythos in those decades. Last thing, Brennan also had a supernatural detective character. Yes. That he wrote a lot about a kind of a Karnacki guy. And he was called Lucius Leffing. And there's about 40 stories. People really like him. Hmm. And he was writing that character all the way up to his death at 70 in 1990. So I don't know. Maybe we'll check out Lucius Leffing at some point. Maybe. See what the story is there. But let's get into this amazing story, Slime from 1953. This story has been reprinted at least 50 times. Whoa. It's found its way into lots of anthologies. It should be reprinted that many times because it's freaking awesome. Yes. Uh, The story starts off with the monster, which is kind of new for. For us, at least, I don't think I've seen this before, where the first thing in the story you get is a description of the monster, what it does, how it works, what's going on with it. Yeah. And that's that was really fresh and that got me excited. It feels very modern, almost film cinematic. This could easily have been a, a film. It has a screenplay structure. It totally does. And it made me think of The Blob a lot, which mm-hmm. might have gotten some influence from this story as well, because The Blob came out in 1958. This story predates the film by five years. Yes, and actually there was a lawsuit. Oh, really? After The Blob was released, Brennan sued Paramount for copyright infringement, and he actually received a settlement. Oh, wow. So, and this is weird to me. I promise this is the only tangent I'll, I'll go on here, because I know we had lots to cover, but the screenwriters had said that they got the idea for The Blob from this incident that occurred in Philadelphia in 1950. Four policemen reported the discovery of, quote, a domed disc of quivering jelly 
six feet in diameter, one foot thick at the center, and an inch or two near the edge. When they tried to pick it up, it dissolved into an odorless, sticky scum. Why would they try to pick it up? I don't know. They were probably <laughs> awesome cops, you know. But that's what was on their minds. And the blob in that movie did come from outer space. Right. From a meteor. It seems like the blob would maybe come from the idea of star jelly, which, to quote Wikipedia, is... Mm-hmm. A gelatinous substance sometimes found on grass or even branches of trees. According to folklore, it is deposited on the earth during meteor showers. Star jelly is described as a translucent or grayish-white gelatin that tends to evaporate shortly after having fallen. Hmm. Explanations have ranged from the materials being the remains of frogs, toads, or worms to the byproducts of cyanobacteria or the paranormal, obviously. And reports of the substance date back to the 14th century and have continued to the present day. So this is a very old idea that there's this strange jelly out there. And if you go down the rabbit hole with the star jelly business, which I won't. There's an English Latin dictionary from around 1440 that has an entry for star slime. Wow. <laughs> Just so even back then. And I think this was obviously influential on in Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, mm-hmm. which had the meteor with the, the strange color within it. And Brennan would have read that. I think he would also have been familiar with the Shoggoths. Exactly. Yeah, that was what I was thinking too. Especially from that description in the very beginning of the show. Yeah. It sounded a lot like a Shoggoth. Absolutely. Well, so I was surprised to discover that Paramount settled on this, given all that folklore they probably could have supported their claim with. But obviously the screenwriters have pulled from the story quite a bit and it was just undeniable. So we can say that The Blob is somewhat an adaptation of this. I do think that there was some issue with Weird Tales being defunct at the time, though, that resulted in Brennan never really seeing the money from the settlement. So that stinks. Anyway, back to the story. So we've got this black slime creature that feeds at the bottom of the deep ocean. No light down there. And this thing eats every animal it comes in contact with. It absorbs it. It's kind of amorphous. It has tentacles sometimes. It has different shapes. It moves around. Then there's this volcanic eruption that gets it tossed up out of the depths. Yes, exactly. Kind of like uh, Dagon. Yes. Right, where the big kind of slime island comes out. And this thing is not from outer space, although space is mentioned in that opening paragraph. Comparing the bottom of the ocean floor, it says it's as inhospitable as the depths of space. Sure. I just want to say the writing is so good in the story. It's so on point. It's really good. Right from the beginning, we know we're in the hands of a poet with that. It was a great gray-black hood of horror. Right away, it's just got this flow that's really incredible. Now, this creature predates all life on Earth, and it's been up to the same thing in that whole time, which is just eating. You know, hunger is the only thing it feels, and it's insatiable. As soon as it eats, it's hungry again. It's a Lovecraftian creature in that it's ancient. It's living in the depths. But I think it's more on the monster side than the weird. Yeah. Shoggoths were this slave race that had fought a rebellion, you know, and and (laughs) who really knows what they want. They're multifaceted. Whereas this thing is absolutely simple. It is hunger made manifest. It knows no fear. It's nearly indestructible. So it's Jaws. It's the Terminator. It's a monster with capital M. It's a knowable monster. As you said, the story starts with the description of it. So, I mean, right away, this, this is not being hidden from us. But the genius thing that Brennan is exploiting is he can tell us everything about it. But because of the nature of the thing is that it's amorphous so we can still have a really fun time imagining it so it doesn't restrict yeah. our, our imagination so, so so anyway this primordial horror is suddenly blasted up to the surface of the ocean and it's stunned at first by the change which allows it to be pushed towards shore without it darting back down into the waters it got pushed up so far that it rode a tidal wave into land and over a shore into a swamp it spends some time just kind of adapting to its new environment all of this happened at night it doesn't know what light is yet when it came up it was it was still dark and the organism is almost indestructible the, the story describes early on how sharks and jellyfish try to rend it to pieces but it just reforms it's never injured and it so quickly adapts to this environment of lower pressure and atmosphere it's a little like a tardigrade in a certain respect you know those 
microscopic little animals that are virtually immortal. They can mm. survive anywhere. I mean, that's one thing that's scary about the story is that there's a certain credibility to the monster, too. Sure. You know, a werewolf is kind of preposterous. How would that really work? You know, if, I mean, I, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Well, this thing, in my mind, it seems like, man, there could be something like that down there. We just haven't discovered it. Sure, absolutely. And now that the thing is out of the water, it actually kind of feels light on its feet. It says, you know, in fact, it felt lighter and more mobile than it ever had before. A lot less pressure. (laughs) It's ready to go. Then it starts looking for food when it's ready to go. It gets some fish, some bugs, and then it finds a delectable muskrat. It's really excited. It methodically explores every crevice of the swamp. And again, no matter how much it eats, it's never satisfied. But there's lots more interesting life for it to take down out here. But then when the sun starts coming up, it doesn't like it. It tries to attack the light, which I thought was a really <laughs> neat because it's, like, it's something coming at it. And so when mm. it, it tried to attack the light, it couldn't get it. It's, it's like when uh, chimpanzees make noise during a storm, try and be louder than the storm as a way to fight it. Yeah. They just don't understand the nature of what they're dealing with. <laughs> exactly. It can't deal with the light and it just retreats back into the muck at the bottom of the swamp. That ends sort of the first chapter. Now we find out that the swamp is called Wharton Swamp and it's near the small town called Clinton Center. This guy, a tramp named Henry Hossing, He comes out of an alley shack that he had slept in the night before. He's really cautious because he doesn't want to get caught by the cops because they've already told him to beat it and not be in town. (laughs) At first I was excited because I thought, this, hey, maybe this will be a deeply flawed main character who's going to undergo a change after confronting the slime. Yeah. But then I thought, no, wait, a wino and a monster story? Hmm, What was I thinking? This is the 50s. (laughs) Yeah. I got excited too because I I thought maybe, is the main character a homeless guy? That would be so cool. That would be great. But no, he's not the main character. He's because just, he's the lowest status, and that means first victim. Yeah. We're moving into slasher territory at this point, so start start the victim count. He's looking around, making sure the cops aren't there. He notices that there's something on the ground. He gets a little closer. It's a $10 bill, and that's, you know, a decent amount of money in the 1950s. Heck yeah. And he decides he's going to go over to the diner and spend some of that 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. Comes in, they're like, hey, no free coffee today, buddy. And he goes, uh-uh-uh, shows them the green, and they let him stay. So he orders orange juice, toast, ham and eggs, oatmeal, melon, and coffee. And that costs two bucks. What a deal. He sticks around and then he gets a $3 lunch. Yeah. He's got five bucks left. So he heads over to the liquor store and buys a quart of rye whiskey. The weather's nice. So he decides he's going to drink it up, not in the alley where he was hanging because he doesn't want to get caught by the cops. So he's going to go out to the swamp. He finds a, a nice little uh, sweet gum tree and he drinks himself good, mm-hmm. feeling pretty nice. He falls asleep, wakes up, sun's setting, so he builds a little fire to keep warm, drinks some more. Yeah. Fire goes out a bit. Then he smells something horrible. He yeah. says it was heavy, fulsome, fetid, alien, and utterly repellent. It was vaguely fish-like, but otherwise beyond any known comparison. And this freaks him out a bit, so he tries to get the fire going up more throws some twigs on it and the fire starts to go a bit and then he hears something kind of slithering around Mm-hmm. The flames shoot up for a second. It moves away. So he kind of tries to find some more wood to throw on the fire, but he can't find any wood and the fire starts going out. He can somehow sense the fire is the only thing protecting him. Deep down, he knows that he's prey right now. The stench becomes stronger and the slithering comes closer and he's just frozen with fear. bit of wood uh, breaks and it makes a flash of fire and he, get a, he gets a glimpse of this thing as it's mm-hmm. moving really fast at him. And he says, a terrible ringing scream bursts from his throat but it was smothered before it was finished as the black shape of slime fastened upon him with irresistible force. Cut to black. 
His scream echoes. This is an effect we'll see a few times, the last glimpse of the monster in some kind of flash of light. Because the victims have to see it. Of course. Before it gets them, so they know the the true horror. But it can't be too much light, because it would scare the monster away. Exactly. So the next break, we have this new character, Old Man Gauss, which I'm already excited about. Mm -hmm. He's an old guy, farmer dude, lives out by Wharton Swamp. So he goes out to the barn and checks on his cow, plays things to high heaven, gets to the cow's stall, sorry, his cow, is just gone, not there. He runs out, calls for her. I, I wasn't sure cows come when you call. That <laughs> I don't know. And then he goes back into the barn to investigate. The whole place is covered with slime, like snail slime, and it's really stinky. So he goes out into town and he wants to tell folks about what's going on and they just laugh at him. Yeah, I don't really like the people of Clinton Center because Me neither. He, I don't know why they're all laughing at him. It's strange what happened, but he hasn't attributed to UFOs or anything like that. He no. just says, hey, my cow's missing. There's a bunch of slime out there. I'm freaked out. You all should be suspicious of these occurrences. That seems pretty <laughs> reasonable. Why? Yeah. Some folks suggested that there was a storm the night before and that some stuff might have come up from the ocean. Maybe that's where the smell came from. Maybe mm-hmm. it was actually a big bunch of snails. Well, see, that's funny. A lot of people, it said this, they said maybe the slime on the barn floor were, was snails. And he, he thinks snails, as if he'd ever seen one, could cause that much slime. And I thought... <laughs> No, no, they said snails, plural. Like, it would yeah. be a lot of snails. But in his head, he immediately go, oh, there's no snail big enough to take out a cow. <laughs> Maybe old man Gauss is a little kooky, if that's where his mind went right away. <laughs> One giant snail. So he goes back home and he saw his neighbor, Rupert Barnaby, uh, with his hunting dog and his shotgun. His hunting dog, Jib. Yeah, they, they come across each other's path. Old man Gauss says, my cow's gone. If you see her, he paused, but I don't think you will. And then Barnaby goes, what are you getting at? And so he tells him the story. And then he says, you know, you probably shouldn't go out in the swamp tonight hunting because that's would be probably a bad idea. And of course, Barnaby just laughs him off and he goes anyway. So Barnaby and Jib go out into the swamp. Barnaby's a big hunter. He loves it. The thrill of it, the adventure, the romance. Mm. Jib starts going after something and then he just stops. And this is weird because Jib's not afraid of anything. He says he even went after a bear once. So now he's a bit scared. Yeah. Barnaby finds a coon trail and kind of goes, hey, look, look, we should follow this little trail here. The jog seems kind of distracted, but eventually kind of follows follows the trail. Right. Moves ahead of Barnaby. Barnaby follows him. The dog runs in some brush. Then he yelps and runs out, goes under his legs. Now, Barnaby's never seen this before in his dog, and he's afraid. Yeah. But he's sort of the stubborn guy, and he's like, there's nothing out here that I can't shoot. And if they find out I ran out of here, everybody's going to talk about what a coward I am. So I got to plunge forward. He hears something that's moving around. Sounds like something being dragged in the brush. And then he gets a whiff of the stench. Yeah. And then he just stands there because he's totally afraid. And then the sound gets louder and louder and he just starts shooting. Mm-hmm. And then in the muzzle flash, he sees, like you said earlier, this black thing hooding up on him, rolling at him super fast. And he just keeps shooting and shooting and shooting until it gets to the last second and he tries to run, but it just doesn't end well. For doesn't Barnaby. end well. He gets that last glimpse. And then he's gone, but the dog got away, so good news, good news. So uh, the next morning, old man Gauss, he gets up, gets his breakfast, goes over to Barnaby's to check on him, and the house is quiet, but it's not just quiet, it's too quiet. <laughs> and Barnaby is uh, usually up and about at sunrise, so that's kind of strange. It, you, it actually uses the too quiet cliche. It does. It yeah. says that. It was always quiet, too quiet, which I like to use for other cha- adjectives, you know, like, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. A little too good. <laughs> It's great to put that little ominous twist on 
All things, you say, really. Works every time. Looking around, he finds Jib. He's all slunked by the side of the house, and OMG says... OMG. Oh, old man Gauss. Yeah, old man Gauss, OMG. <laughs> I saw you wrote OMG all over these notes, and I thought, wow, this story is really freaking cool <laughs> out. Every plot twist, you're going, OMG, OMG. <laughs> so OMG says to the dog, he's like, where's Rup? Where'd Rup go? And then the dog just kind of looks really sad and howls. Yeah. So old man is freaked out. And he realizes something is really wrong, so he heads back into town. OMG, he listens to and he trusts the dog. As you should. As you should. And this was the 50s when you could still really trust dogs, too. <laughs> so that was the right decision. Old man Gauss goes uh, to the cops. He tells police chief Underbeck that Barnaby is missing. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the police will be helpful in a monster story. Well, no. <laughs> Chief Underbeck is skeptical and gets OMG to admit that maybe Barnaby left for the day before he got over there mm. and he just missed him. But the old man is adamant about it. He says, he never came out. I tell ye, that dog of his knows. Howled he did, like a dog howls for the dead. Whatever came and took Sari got Barnaby in a swamp last night. Yes. And the, the, the police chief is just like, yeah, whatever, dude. If he doesn't show up by the end of the day, I'll look into it. Yeah. If you can get the dog down here to testify, maybe then I'd believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so OMG leaves very unsatisfied. Listen, Clinton Center is having Swamp Fest this week, and I'm not going to get everybody riled up about some giant slimy mess what eats people. Now, nobody likes losing a cow. I lost my Winifred 20 years ago. I still carry a photo of her in the band of my underwear, but let's be reasonable here. I invented a little backstory for the, oh my God. For the policeman here. You need to write, rewrite this story. <laughs> Yeah, they're doing, you know, they do all these uh, film remakes. Mm -hmm. There needs to be story remakes. They do, yeah. People don't do that. We should do slime redacted, kind of like Ken <laughs> did with Dracula. All the details about these characters you didn't know. So that night at 6 p.m., Old Man G uh, checks into the Crown, which is Clinton Center's second-rung hotel, because he's smart. He knows that something bad is afoot, and he, yeah. he's going to get far away from the swamp as possible. And, the, and he knows that the blob will only go towards the top-tier hotels. It won't hit the second <laughs> rung. He knows that thing's got style. Yeah, it has taste, of course. Uh, so around 7 p.m., the chief sends a patrol car over to Barnaby's place. The cops just find the dog, and he howls and runs off. Right. Since it was night, they're not going to go into the swamp, but they kind of look around the area for a few hours, and by nine, they decide to start a real search in the morning. And the cop, he still thinks, this guy's probably just the hunters off visiting a friend or something. Back at the police station around 9.30, an old man shows up with a sobbing, freaking out teenage girl. Right. Her skirt and stocking are torn. There's scratches on her face. Now, this story got the cover in that issue of Weird Tales it was in. And, of course, the cover is a beautiful, somewhat scantily clad woman being menaced by the monster. And I know I just described every Weird Tales cover. <laughs> but at least that scene is actually in this story. It is. Uh, the old guy says that he almost hit her with his car out by, you guessed it, Wharton Swamp. She's all crazy. It seems like something grabbed her boyfriend out in the bushes. And Chief Underbeck manages to calm the girl down. Her name is Dolores Rell. In my mind, she's wearing an Angora sweater. Of course. She was with her fiance Jason out for a ride, and they decided to walk along the marsh. It looked romantic. I mean, she wasn't that into it, but he's like, come on, baby, this will be a sweet walk. Dude, they were out dogging. Exactly. So while they're out dogging, <laughs> they hear this swishing sound. And he says, ah, it's probably somebody's cow. Relax. Which is actually in the story. So there is a weird relationship in Clinton Center between people and cows. <laughs> Just another cow out and enjoying himself. So as the sound gets closer, though, it starts moving with really incredible speed. And it yeah. doesn't seem to be making the kinds of noises a cow would make. Jason says, run, run, run at the last second. And she runs for it, looking behind her. 
She could not describe exactly what she had seen as she looked over her shoulder. The thing which she had glimpsed rushing under the trees had caught up with Jason. It almost completely covered him. All she could see of him was his agonized face and part of one arm low near the ground as if the thing were squatting astride him. She could not say what it was. It was black, formless, bestial and not bestial. It was the dark, gliding kind of indescribable horror which she had shuddered at when she was a little girl alone in the nursery at night. She shuddered now and covered her eyes as she tried to picture what she had seen. Oh God, the darkness came alive! The darkness came alive! So, by the numbers in a kind of a slasher way, the first victim was out there drinking. Shouldn't have been doing that. Second victim was the hunter who was warned not to go, but he went anyway. Shouldn't have been willful like that. The third victim, out on a date. He's with the girl and they weren't married yet. Probably out there dogging. Yep. (laughs) Shouldn't have done that. I mean, they were engaged. They were engaged. Maybe a little too engaged. (laughs) But, But what about Sari? She didn't do anything wrong. She the was cow? just minding her own business in her barn. I know. So Underbeck rounded up all of his available men, and they got some shotguns and some flashlights and some rifles and four patrol cars worth, and uh, they headed off for Wharton Swamp. Yeah. After two hours of search, they don't find anything. They call off the hunt, and they're going to wait until morning. And then the next day, so we can kind of, I mean, this, there's just a, a gradually increasing ferocity to their searching. At first, yeah. it's a little lazy. But then they find uh, the rye whiskey bottle and the hat of the hobo. They find the, the rifle in the mud that belongs to the hunter. They talk to people at the liquor stores and they realize, oh, this this was that hobo that was supposed to be out of town. So he's missing. They come up yeah. with this conclusion. You know, maybe this tramp, this hobo went crazy with the drink. Yeah. He murdered <laughs> the hunter. Yeah. And he's hiding out there. And he murdered this Jason guy. So then they start patrolling looking for a person. Then we cut ahead to this scene with some cops, right? There's Fred Store and Luke Matson, and they're on this midnight to three o'clock patrol. Then they hear something. You hear something, Luke? Total B movie. You know, I'm imagining those cops from Plan 9 from Outer Space out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, they get a little closer to the swamp, and he's like, don't see a thing. Nothing but a big pool of black scum up ahead there. Boom, we have the same thing. The thing lurches forward. Luke Matson, the one cop, he screams and fires, but the thing grabs him and eats him. And his friend, Fred, the other officer, is like, what? And he manages to uh, aim his rifle at the thing and start firing. Doesn't do anything, and the thing's coming towards him, but at the last minute, he grabs his flashlight and shines it at the monster. The monster goes... (laughs) Doesn't like it. And then other people show up with their flashlights, and the monster gets a little freaked out. He's looking back and forth, and then he goes back out into the swamp. So Fred managed to survive. But only with the flashlight. That was the one weapon that seemed to work against it. Right, that's the weakness. Chief Underbeck, in the next morning, he makes some phone calls. He gets some guys over from the army over there from Camp Evans. Yeah, he realizes they can't deal with this themselves. And they gets the, he gets the state police in as well. So everybody is there. And the fact that Fred Storr saw this thing, the cop, that's what tips Chief Underbeck yeah. into actually believing this. He says... Fred Storr was no excitable young girl. He had a reputation for level-headedness. So he didn't believe the woman who was assaulted, but he did believe. <laughs> of course. The man who fought it with a flashlight. There's a great little moment here, though. On his way back to the swamp from the station, Chief Underback sees old man Gauss walking yeah. along the street. And he says, old man Cassandra. Cassandra, of course, the Greek prophet. She was gifted with the ability to see the future, but cursed and that nobody would ever believe her prophecies. Right. I was thinking about that. Lovecraft says that the oldest emotion is fear, but I think the next oldest emotion must be, I told you so. <laughs> and that's the reason that Cassandra character exists in almost every kind of monster story, because we all see ourselves in it. We were the ones that knew first, but nobody would believe it. Right. I told Jenny not to date Steve. Now they're both in jail. <laughs> What? Should have listened to me. 
The chief is there with the state police, some army guys, other local volunteers, 300 dudes in total go out into the swamp ready to cause some problems for swamp monsters. Yeah. Right out of the gate, they beat up an owl. They chase off a bobcat. One of the men gets bit by a snake. So, mankind two, nature one. They were out before dusk and found nothing, of course, because the creature hides away during the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lots of folks are getting really skeptical, but Chief Underbeck isn't going to give up easy on this. And he says, you know what? All the attacks have happened at night, so let's take a break and we'll go out when it's dark. At this point, after dusk, helicopters flying overhead. They set up barriers all over the place. There's even machine guns and flamethrowers. Yes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So by 11 p.m., they are good to go. Mankind is going to deal with this. Night came and we're back with the creature's perspective. Night comes, the beast jumps out and he's ready to eat some stuff and he feels vibrations and he senses that there's some movement. So he goes over to where the movement is and he wants to eat it. Yeah, there's lots of, lots of, lots of vibrations. This is going to be a good meal. And so it moves, but then it there's like a beam of light and then it moves away from the light. But then there's another beam of light and it's like, what gives? It's nighttime. There shouldn't be streaks of light. This doesn't make any sense. And it retreats back into the ooze. But there's all these vibrations that keep moving over to where it is. There's all these beams of light that are shooting into the mud where it was sleeping, even getting into the silt, like because there's so much light that's being brought around here. For the first time ever, this thing felt something akin to fear. It just shoots right out of the water and it's heading back to the sea. Now, uh, the guys patrolling along the beach, they hear some shouts and some gunfire. And so they light up the beach with a bunch of spotlights and the Mm. thing burst out of the weeds. Some of the guards saw it and they were just freaked out by the thing because it's really scary. Some shot at it and others were too scared to even shoot. But of course, the guns don't do anything. The thing moves on. It goes to a sand dune and it's about to get to the beach yeah. and they quickly realize the guns have no effect on the thing. But fortunately, police chief Underbeck had set up a length of barbed wire over the beach. Mm-hmm. When it hits the barbed wire, it actually slows the thing down. Blob style, it kind of starts going, has to push itself through the thing. It twisted and flopped and squirmed like some unspeakable giant jellyfish snared in a fisherman's net. The guards run up to it, but they see that it's not totally stopping it. It's just slowing it down. It's about to get away. There was a collective gasp of horrified dismay as the the monster, with a quick forward lurch, squeezed through the barrier. It tilted there briefly, twisting, as if a few last threads of itself might still be entangled in the wire. As it moved to disengage itself and rush down the wet sands into the black sea, one of the guards hurled himself forward until he was almost abreast of the barrier. Sliding to his knees, he aimed at the escaping hood of horror. A second later, a great searing spout of flame shot from his weapon and burst in a smoky red blossom against the thing on the opposite side of the wire. Black oily smoke billowed into the night. A ghastly stench flowed over the beach. The guard saw a flaming mass of horror grope away from the barrier. The soldier who aimed the flamethrower held it remorselessly steady. There was a hideous bubbling, hissing sound. Vast gouts of thick, greasy smoke swirled into the night air. The indescribable stench became almost unbearable. When the soldier finally shut off the flamethrower, there was nothing in sight except the white-hot glowing wires of the barrier and a big patch of blackened sand. With good reason, the mantle of slime had hated light, for its ultimate source was fire final unknown enemy which even the Black Hood could not drag down and devour. And that is the end of the story. That's it. I loved it. The fire was its weakness. That's the thing that finally took it down. The creature itself is a little on the weird side, maybe. I guess a little bit. 
just because it's a little kind of like, what is it that actually allows this thing to operate? What force allows it to have the characteristics that it has? But mostly this is a pretty by the numbers monster in the house story. One victim after another till they exploit the final weakness, which is light, (laughs) you know, sunshine, goodness, and they're able to kill it. (laughs) But still, man, what a great read, and it was so fun. And I love The Blob. It's really well written. It's a really great story. I'm so glad we got turned on to it. Next week, we are going to continue with our theme. This one, we're going to jump back to some William Hope Hodgson. We're going to cover the story, A Voice in the Night. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. It's another water monster-ish kind of deal, huh? Yes, it is indeed. This is shaping up to be a great summer. Hey, do you remember from The Blob, they have that kind of novelty song that went with (laughs) it? You bet I remember. I'm going to play some of that in the outro because I always loved that song. I want to thank Andrew Lehman for rocking and rolling as always. And folks, go to CthulhuLives.org and check out their new show, The White Tree, a Inspector Lagrasse tale. I haven't heard it yet, but I'm sure I'm going to be hearing it soon. And I will enjoy it just like all of the other Dark Adventure Radio Theater productions. You know it'll be outstanding. And with that, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Feinke, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hplovecraft.com, let's party. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor, right through the door and all around the wall. A splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob.